Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Normally on the first Sunday of the month, we would be doing our Community Sunday, but since we were working to uh, advertise that uh, series of lessons, we're going to postpone our Community Sunday until next month. And I want to continue today looking at our study of Malachi. If your Bibles aren't already open to the book of Malachi, ask that you'll open them there now. Last week we started this study. We talked about how Malachi might be thought of as God's message to a rebellious child. And really, I I got to thinking about it, and when you look at Israel's history throughout the entire Old Testament, you could almost say just about any prophet of the Old Testament uh, would fit this description. God's message to a rebellious child. But Malachi especially so. Uh, Because as we read through this book of Malachi, we continue to see Israel talking back to God. God will give Israel some instruction, some rebuke, and yet Israel is continuing to say, well, that's not how we see things. We looked in chapter 1 at two different sections. The first section is where God says, I have loved you. He leads with love before he gets into any of the rebuke. And yet Israel says, well, how have you loved us? Look at where we are. We've been taken into captivity now. Yes, we've come back, but we're just a a shadow of our former glory. How have you loved us? As well, God asks them, where is my respect? Uh, And indicts them for not giving him the proper honor. And they say, well, how have we despised you? And in both cases, God brings forward his evidence. Uh, First of all, to show his love, he shows uh, the contrast between his mercy and allowing Israel to return to the land and rebuild in contrast to Edom, who had experienced uh, uh, finality in their judgment. Uh, No, God has not given Israel what they deserve, uh, but has had mercy in allowing them to return. And as well, with their irreverence, he gives them the, the evidence, the proof, of their sacrifices. They were offering to God their leftovers, the blind, the lame, the sick. Uh, They were simply offering these offerings out of a sense of obligation rather than genuine devotion to the Lord. And it was showing in the type of offerings that they were bringing. But as we get into chapter 2 now, we're going to see God continues with his correction and rebuke of his people. But as things progress, he's going to make it very clear that he has no intention of allowing this corruption to continue. God will either bring punishment upon them or they must repent. Uh, Either penitence or punishment, those are the choices, and God is going to leave that choice up to them. And so as we get into chapter 2 of Malachi, the first message that we see here in the first nine verses is that things don't have to be this way. And this address is primarily to the priest. Now, chapter 1 seems to be a a good deal directed towards the priest. He talks about, you priests who despise my name. Uh, But here, very clearly, starts off in verse 1, and now this commandment is for you, O priests. Well, I have a lot to say to the people. Right now, he's going to focus in on the religious leadership first. And God starts off in verse 2. He says, if you do not listen... And if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name. Now he's talking about what he talked about in chapter 1. Giving God the reverence, the honor that he deserves. He says, listen, you, you need to give me reverence. I am a great king. You need to worship me in that way. If you don't, if you don't listen, if you don't take it to heart, 
this is what's going to happen. Uh, we see uh, God's punishment will not come without fair warning and an opportunity to repent. You, you can almost see God as, as a parent here saying, as his child is acting up, saying, okay, do you want to rethink what you just did? Did, did you hear what dad said? This is your chance to start acting the right way. If you don't change your attitude, you better prepare for a spanking. That, that's kind of God's message here. He's giving them a chance. Listen, if you don't hear what I just said, punishment is coming. And he goes on to say what that punishment is. He says, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I will curse them. I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Here, the, the, the Levites, the priests, would, would proclaim blessings upon the peace, people, but God says, I'm going to curse your blessings. You remember once before God did the opposite. Remember in the time of Balaam, uh, when Balak had called Balaam to come and to curse the people of God, and every time Balaam got up to curse God's people, what happened? God turned that curse into a blessing. Because of God's favor upon his people. But what God is saying here is that I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to turn my, my favor into a curse against you if you do not repent. In verse 3, he says, Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Here, this idea of the, the refuse of their feasts, uh, the entrails, the, the leftover pieces of animal after the animals had been butchered. Here, this offal or, or this, this excess of their feast was to be burned outside of the camp. And so what God is doing here in, in spreading this on their faces and then taking them outside the camp, he's making them unfit to serve and he's going to take them out to where these things would, would be burned. And so you remember in chapter 1 when he said, won't somebody just shut the gates? Won't somebody close the doors of the temple so that you might not offer anymore? God's saying, if you're not going to close it, I'm going to close it for you. I'm going to put this refuse on your faces, and that is going to make you unfit to serve. You're going to be driven out of the camp. God is not playing around here. This punishment is not some little slap on the wrist, is it? Now, God is very serious. But he is giving them this warning that this might not be the case. And God doesn't want this to be the case for them. And he makes that clear as he goes on in verse 5 through 7. That God here has a much better picture of what he wants his relationship to the priest to be like what his covenant was intended to be with them all along. If you read with me, starting verse 5, he says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Here's God's picture of what he intended the Levites and the priests to be. To faithfully show reverence and honor to him, and if that was the case, this was going to be a covenant of life and of peace for them. 
God doesn't want to spread refuse on their faces. God doesn't want to drive them outside the camp. God doesn't want to curse their blessing. God wants to bless them with life and peace. But if he's going to, it means that they're going to have to show him the reverence that he deserves. It means that they're going to have to teach his word faithfully. That they are going to have to practice uprightness, be ambassadors for the knowledge of God, faithfully proclaim his law. And while God here has this covenant with the priest, and he is upholding his end of the covenant, he makes it very clear that the priests are not upholding their end of the covenant. And these actions of the priest are not just negligence. You know, you think about a, a child who disobeys. You know, sometimes a child might disobey just because they weren't really thinking, because they didn't really hear what, what dad said. They, they were distracted by something else. But that's not the case here. No, this is rebellious. This is the priest doing the exact opposite of what God had instructed them to do. In verse 8, it says, But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Here, everything that God wanted them to be, they were the exact opposite. They were to turn people back from iniquity, and yet they themselves were the ones that were turning to iniquity. They were to, to preserve knowledge, and yet in their instructions, they were causing people to stumble. Instead of keeping the covenant, they were corrupting the covenant. And so, as we think about application for us, we see that while God's love is unconditional, his blessings are not. That if we want to have life and peace, if we want the blessings of a covenant relationship with the Lord, then we have to keep our end of the covenant. And God doesn't want to bring judgment upon us. God is not, you know, sitting there saying, okay, if, if you don't change, I'm going to get to spank you. <laughs> he doesn't want that to happen. No, he's giving us the chance to change so that we might not have to go through that punishment. And we see this concept throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 and 20, God tells the children of Israel, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. That says, I, I, I'm setting two options before you, and it's up to you to choose. But what does he urge us to do? He says, choose life. Don't choose the curse. Don't choose to, to neglect me, to turn away from me, and to, to experience the punishment associated with that. God takes no pleasure in the pain of his children. Yet he gives us the freedom to choose. And he's not going to bend his standards to accommodate our rebellion. We see the same concept in the New Testament. Re Romans chapter 11, using Israel as an example here, it says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Brethren, we serve a very loving God. God is love. But we just serve a just and a righteous God as well. 
And if you read throughout the scriptures, you can see great demonstrations of his mercy and his grace. But you also see great demonstrations of his judgment. And we ought not to think that there is no way that God would ever judge me that way. Well, no. God has set before me life and death, his kindness and his severity. And if I do not continue in his kindness, then I will be judged. You know, you can think about the parent talking with their child and giving them the ultimatum, giving them the choice. You can either stop pouting, stop talking back. You can either start acting right or you're going to get a spanking. Now, which do you want? You know, the choice seems pretty simple, right? It seems pretty obvious. Which one do I want? Do I want to be punished, or do I want to remain within the good favor of my parent here? Well, many times we, we know, even when given that choice, children may not always choose the right one. Why is that? Well, because we get so caught up in our own emotions and our own lust in the moment that even though the options are right before us and we know if we continue down this road, it's going to mean punishment, well, that's not what I'm focused on right now. Is that us? Brother, we need to make sure that we see clearly the choices that God is setting before us. And when we see it clearly, the choice is obvious. So many times we don't see it clearly. So many times we become so focused on ourselves and on our current circumstances, our current desires, our current feelings, that we forget what these choices really are. And the example of Israel should warn us against this. God has a very consistent track record of punishing disobedience. We shouldn't think that we're somehow going to be the exception. No, God has shown us very clearly how he deals with sin. And so we need to choose life. We need to take this warning to heart ourselves and be willing to accept the terms of his covenant, his covenant of life and of peace. But as we continue here in Malachi 2, we get into this next section of 10 through 16. We see that the focus kind of expands a little bit beyond just the priesthood to the people in general. There seems to be some continued indications that the priesthood uh, is in, in thought as we talk about the sanctuary and the altar in this section. But primarily, he's talking to the people in general. He starts out in verse 10. He says, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? We talked about the Levites profaning their covenant. Now he kind of expands that uh, to talk about the, the covenant that Israel has with God in general. And within this covenant, he says that we all have one father, that God has created us. Now what we're talking about here in this context is not the, the common fatherhood of, of all creation, of all mankind, uh, but primarily as you look there at the end of verse 10 when he says, um, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers, I think he's talking primarily about Israel having been created by God and God being their father in that sense. Uh, and so they have a, a common father here, and the reason he, he sets that down 
and establishes that common relationship that they share is because their actions are going against that common family bond that they share. They're dealing treacherously. If you look throughout this section, verse 10, verse 11, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, continuously he talks about them dealing treacherously or acting faithlessly. They are violating this family bond that they share. Well, how is it? How is it that they're dealing treacherously with one another? Well, I think we see two ways, primarily in verse 11. If you want to read with me there, it says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. One way that they're dealing treacherously is they are reaching out beyond the, the family that God designed for them to seek marriages with, with foreign gods, something that God had, had instructed them not to do. We see this being a, a problem in Nehemiah chapter 13, which is uh, the historical context that is most likely fits the book of Malachi, where after the people come back from captivity, we see Nehemiah coming in the second time and them all having intermarried with the nations around them. And God wanted his family to maintain a holiness with him. And so they are violating this, this covenant, this family bond that they share by, by going outside of that um, and following after foreign gods by, by marrying the daughter of a foreign god here, daughters of other nations who worshipped other gods. But along with that, I think closely related to that, if you look in verse 14 and 15, we see that they dealt treacherously towards the wife of their youth, towards their companion, towards the wife of their covenant. Not only are they seeking out unlawful relationships with others, but they are breaking the covenant relationships that they share um, with their own wives. And I, I think while this was probably very literal, that we are talking about marriages that, that were broken, uh, divorces and intermarriage with other countries. I think there's a deeper spiritual significance to this as well. This unfaithfulness in the marriage covenants among the Israelites reflected deeper unfaithfulness in their relationship to the Lord. And what we see because of them dealing treacherously is that just as God rejected their irreverent offerings in chapter 1, he's going to reject these offerings in chapter 2 because they are tainted with immorality and unfaithfulness. You see in verse 13 that the uh, Israelites are weeping and groaning to God. Why isn't he accepting our offerings? Why isn't he viewing us favorably? They say in verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? And God tells them why because of their unfaithfulness, because they are dealing treacherously, not just with God, but with one another. And so when we sin against one another, we need to recognize that we are primarily sinning against God. We are tearing his family apart. And God does not look lightly on those who harm his children. And so I think the primary point that we see here uh, is our obligation to love God's children, to love God's family. Uh, and if we want to be pleasing in his sight, we need to treat his children with love and with honor. We see the same concept in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. 
Here we're told you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Here are prayers being heard by God are dependent on how we treat our wives, how we interact in our family relationships. And notice here the wife is called a fellow heir of the grace of life. Being a fellow heir, she, she is a, a daughter of the king, right? And we better be pretty careful how we treat a daughter of the king. If we want the king to hear our appeals, we better not do harm to his daughter. This is the exact concept, I think, that we see here in Malachi 2. That it's not that, that God is only offended or only concerned when we make some affront directly to him. No, God is a caring father. And he cares about his children, about his family. And so how we treat his family has a deep impact on our relationship with him. Now back here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 is just about the most difficult verse in this entire book. Uh, I'd encourage you to read different translations of verse 15. But I think that the basic idea in whatever translation that you read seems to be that God here is the one who created us. God is the one who, who breathed a portion of his spirit into us. God is the one who created marriage. He's the one who made the two into one or one flesh. Why did he do that? Well, I think the indication here is that he might have a godly offspring. God's desire. Why, why did God create man? Why did God create marriage? Why did he tell them to, to be fruitful and multiply? God wants a godly offspring. God wants to have a, a family of, of children who reflect his character, who reflect his family values. I, I, I think about my grandfather in the latter years of his life. There, there was just about no greater joy that he could experience than to have all of his family come and spend time together. And, and the times that our, our, the Huggins family would, would get together and, and he would be able to observe, observe our relationships with one another, our love for one another, that would bring great joy to his heart. And then that's God's attitude towards his children. God has no greater joy than to see his children dwelling together and loving each other and growing the way that he intended for them to. God desires a, a godly offspring. And so when we tear that down, it is a great affront to God himself. God desires that the family of the faithful might grow to his eternal joy as our spiritual patriarch. And so what is our response to that need to be? Well, in consideration of verse 15, that the spirit that, that he has given to us and that he wants us to multiply... He then says in verse 15 and again in verse 16, take heed then to your spirit. When we recognize that God has 
put a part of himself within us, that God has stamped his image upon us, that God intends that, that we be image bearers for him, then we need to take great heed that we remember who we are. We remember whose family we are a part of. We remember the family values. We don't take this, this home, this family for granted. We show that we are worthy of living in this loving home. That we develop a family loyalty. Show love and appreciation to our brothers and sisters that God has given us. Brethren, if we value the church, if we value this spiritual family as God values it, we're not going to be dealing unfaithfully with one another. We're not going to be doing harm to each other. We're going to be reflecting that love towards each other. We can't separate our love for God from our love for one another. Matthew 22, uh, verse 37 through 40, we see the, the first and second greatest command. When Jesus is asked the question, what, what is the greatest command in the law? Jesus doesn't give one answer. He gives two answers. Why is that? Well, because you can't separate those two. Now, you, you can't love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength, and not then love your neighbor as yourself. We've been studying recently in 1 John. Notice in 1 John 4, verse 20 and 21, we're told if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Why is it that we can't truly love God without loving our brethren? Well, he gives two reasons here. One, he says, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love is demonstrated in action. And it it may be easy for me at, at times to claim, well, I love God. But God is up in heaven, and I at least don't directly interact with him in the same way that I interact with his children from day to day. I can claim love for God, but where that really shows itself, where that demonstrates itself from day to day, it is how I treat his children. Love must be demonstrated. So I can't claim to love God and not show love in the ways that I have opportunity from day to day to show it. Uh, within his family. But then secondly, in verse 21, the other reason is that God's commandment is for us to love one another. One of God's greatest, most foundational commandments is that we love each other. And so if I want to please God, if my priority is to bring joy to the heart of God, there's nothing greater that I can do than to build up his family than to show my love and care for his children. And so, brethren, in whatever relationship it might be, whether it be our our marriages, our, our homes, whether it be our spiritual family, our brethren, when we act in ways to do damage to these relationships, there is nothing that God takes more seriously. God cares deeply for his family. And we cannot do harm to his children and not be accountable for it. Remember in John 13 and verse 35, Jesus told his disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God's family 
is not supposed to be a dysfunctional family. But how many times do we hear of churches that can be described in no other way? Why is that? Is it God's fault? Not at all. No, God has given us the family values. God has told us exactly how he wants us to act. And if this family is dysfunctional, it's not his fault. It's ours. And so we need to follow his pattern of life and peace. God doesn't want to bring judgment. God doesn't want our relationships to crumble and fall apart. God has given us the pattern. He's given us the information. He's given us everything that we need to know to build strong, godly relationships, to build up his body, his family, his church. And if that's not what we see in our home, if that's not what we see in our family, in our church, then it's our fault. Maybe we need to get back to God's family values. And so as we make application for us today, remember that God has set life and death before us. God has given us a picture of what he wants his relationship with us to be, what he wants our relationship with one another to be, what he wants his church, our families, our homes to be. God's given us the pattern. God's given us the foundation. And yet he's giving the choice up to us. Are we going to choose that? Many times the reason that we don't choose that is because I get caught up in the moment with my own desires, with my own lust, just like the little child who knows what the consequence is going to be, but can't seem to keep themselves from doing the very thing that they know is going to bring punishment. Is that us? Let it not be. God doesn't want it to be. God wants to see his people, his children, thrive spiritually. He wants to see his family develop strong, godly relationships. He wants to see us grow. He wants us to take that love, take that message, take those values, and spread it to the world around us. What about you today? How does God's rebuke apply to you and me? Is there some area that I need to change, that I need to work on, that I need to grow on? Is there some family value that I've been neglecting within God's family? If there is, let's make the change today. And if you need to make a public change, if you need to ask the forgiveness uh, and, and prayers uh, of brethren here, we want to give you that opportunity. We are here to help one another grow to help one another be who God wants us to be. And if there's anything that we can do to help you today in committing your life to the Lord, to become part of his family, or to be reconciled to God, having strayed from him, we want to do that. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, won't you please make it known at this time as we sing.